This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. Welcome to AM. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Ngunnawal country. The budget was a missed opportunity, according to Peter Dutton. He says the Prime Minister could be doing more to ease the cost of living pressures. During his budget reply, the federal opposition leaders accused Anthony Albanese of breaching faith with voters and claims the government's renewable energy policy could see power prices rise even further than the 56% forecast in the budget. Here's political reporter Jane Norman. On Tuesday, a new Treasurer delivered a new government's first budget. I commend the budget and the bill to the House. 48 hours later, buried in hundreds of pages... It's one forecast the opposition leader has zeroed in on. Electricity prices are set to rise by more than 56% and gas prices by more than 44%. That's Treasury's forecast for the next two years, largely due to the global price shock caused by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But just as it was during the election... Cost of living is the political battleground, with inflation reaching 30-year highs. Labor's budget was a missed opportunity to help you at a time when you need help. Peter Dutton didn't offer an alternative approach, instead keeping his focus on Labor and the promises made, but not yet delivered. The Australian public heard the Prime Minister very clearly. On 97 occasions, he promised to you that your bills would go down by $275. Even before the war in Ukraine, Australia's East Coast energy market was in a parlous state, not helped by a decade of coalition climate wars and policy twists and turns. But Mr Dutton warned Labor was heading down a perilous path, rushing recklessly, he says, towards renewables without the capacity to firm them up. So the 56% hike in your electricity bill is just the beginning. On this, he did offer an alternative. Zero emission modular nuclear reactors. The coalition is seeking an intelligent conversation on the role that these new age nuclear technologies might or might not be able to play in the energy mix. In a wide-ranging speech, Peter Dutton confirmed the opposition will back Labor's plans for cheaper medicines and cheaper childcare, both due to kick in next year. But he dismissed Labor's big budget pledge to build a million homes over five years as unrealistic, instead recommitting the coalition to Scott Morrison's housing policy, allowing first home buyers to use their superannuation savings to get into the market. This is Scott Morrison 2.0. That's the Assistant Treasurer, Stephen Jones. Everything we heard was a criticism of what happened a decade ago, a defence of what happened over the last nine years, but no vision for the future. He's got three years to convince voters otherwise. Jane Norman there. The budget also set aside millions of dollars to get the referendum on an Indigenous voice to Parliament up and running and to start setting up the Makarata Commission on truth-telling and treaty-making. They're policies that came from the Uluru Statement of the Heart. But there's a big gap between how much money's been set aside for both policies and some members of the Indigenous community are questioning why. Political reporter Dana Morse has more. Anthony Albanese made two key election promises to the Indigenous community, that he would deliver a referendum for an Indigenous voice to Parliament and he would set up a Makarata Commission for a national truth-telling process and pathway to a treaty between First Nations people and the government. In Tuesday's budget, he added money to these words. And on behalf of the Australian government, commit to the implementation of the Uluru Statement from the Heart 
in full. Just over $75 million has been earmarked for the referendum, while the Makarata Commission for Truth and Treaty will get $5.8 million. Eddie Sinnott is a Wamba Wamba man and member of the Uluru Dialogue team. We're just happy to see that progress is continuing and that they are actually serious about their promise and that they are going to hold a referendum. The bulk of the referendum funding will go towards the Electoral Commission and increasing the number of First Nations people who are enrolled to vote. But there are currently no provisions for funding a yes or no campaign. Mr Sinnott says there could be issues with leaving funding up to the individual sides of the debate. most important thing out of all of that is to ensure Australian people are able to make an informed decision rather than having some of the more, uh, as I said, nefarious interests um, trying to skew that decision making. And there are some in the community who are concerned about the disparity of funding for The Voice compared to the Makarata Commission. Palawa Man and Tasmanian Land Council Chair Michael Mansell says all parts of the Uluru Statement have to be implemented. He said he was going to implement it in full, which meant that he was going to regard truth-telling, treaty and the voice in uh, exactly the same way. Uh, Now that he's committed $75 million to the voice and talking about a referendum and only $5 million to the treaty, that raises even more doubt about his commitment to treaty and truth-telling. Mr Mansell wants to ensure that people who don't agree on the voice aren't excluded from the Makarata Commission. The debate and the expectations of Aboriginal people after Uluru have been hijacked by a small group of people. I do suspect it will be the same people who will control the treaty and truth-telling in the same manner as they've controlled the debate about the voice. Eddie Sinnott says he's confident there is more money in the pipeline to fully realise a Makarata process. The funding they've provided, they've made it very clear, is to begin the planning process for it. It's not all the funding that will be received. That's Eddie Sinnott from the Uluru Dialogue team, ending that report by Dana Morse. Indigenous leader Noel Pearson says achieving constitutional recognition could be more difficult than legalising same-sex marriage. The lawyer and academic made the remark during a Boyer lecture for the ABC describing recognition as a crucial step towards ending racism. Of all the claims I will make in these lectures, this is the boldest. Racism will diminish in this country when we succeed with recognition. Indigenous traditional owners who've become increasingly concerned about new water-thirsty industries setting up in the Northern Territory have asked a Melbourne artist to paint them a huge petition map of their country, which they plan to present to the federal government. The painting records all the important water-dreaming sites along the Territory's Great Roper River that they worry are under threat. Jane Barden reports. In the Ornamland community of Nooker, Elder Clary Rogers is worried NT government plans to give out more water to new gas fracking and cotton industries could damage his important dreaming sites on Bush Tucker along the Roper River. I'm pretty concerned about it. That's why we want to get our boys hurt. I know cotton takes a lot of water. Indigenous communities along the Roper's 300 kilometres are also concerned. So they've banded together to get Melbourne artist Simon Normand to paint them a 13 metre long map of the river. Nooker elder Robin Rogers. That map tells everything. It's just like a Bible or something, you know. It's the map of the dreaming, like kangaroo, mermaid and goanna, where white men can understand what we're talking about. Bubbly water means 
Big water. Big water, Big water. strong water. The artist travelled through the communities, asking traditional owners what dreamings they wanted added to the map. There's eight different language groups, all represented on the one river, and I think that's why it's so powerful. They've also added their petition messages. It says, you can take your plants for cotton, for dams, for mining away with you. The NT government is soon to release its plan to allow floodplain harvesting for the first time for new crops including cotton. The chief executive of the NT Farmers Peak Body, Paul Burke, says it will be sustainable. We're predominantly talking about on-farm dams and filling those in those flood events, utilising a small percentage of that water when it's most prominent. The government also needs to find lots of water for its planned gas fracking industry. But it's emphasising its top-end water rules require 80% of river and aquifer flows to be kept for the environment. And for the first time, NT Water Minister Lauren Moss says big gas and agriculture developments will have to start paying for water. For the first time, the Northern Territory will have a long-term strategic plan around how we use water and how we protect water. Traditional owners, including Clary Rogers, don't trust the NT government's assurances so they're hoping to appeal above its head by presenting them up to federal ministers in Canberra, the way NT land rights petitioners have in the past. Yeah, we'll be talking to them and telling them that it will affect us if the water will be taken from the roper. We will suffer. Look at Elder Clary Rogers speaking there with Jane Barden. With power prices back in the headlines, for all the wrong reasons, consumers are being warned to brace for more bad news. A little-known but vitally important part of the electricity markets in virtual meltdown and the industry cautions the fallout will force retailers to the wall and push prices even higher. Energy reporter Daniel Mercer has the story. When Adrian Merrick set up electricity retailer Energy Locals five years ago, he admits he might have been somewhat unprepared for the ordeals he'd face. Look, it's not a straightforward thing and it's not something that I ever intend to do again, quite honestly. It's been a great experience and we've all learned a massive amount but it's a, it's a rough market where the retailer is the end of the line. Despite the challenges, Energy Locals now has about 100,000 customers across the national electricity market, which spans the eastern states. Adrian Merrick says a big part of why any energy retailer succeeds is its ability to shield consumers from the ups and downs of the wholesale electricity market. And Energy Locals is no different. To provide that protection, retailers typically go through what's known as the hedging or futures market. Hedging in the energy market is, is really an insurance policy that retailers seek to put in place. You know, we don't think most customers want to be exposed to that type of volatility, uh, and nor do we, because it could wipe out many businesses very quickly. But hard times are ahead for retailers such as Energy Locals. The industry has been rocked by revelations that two of the biggest providers in the hedging market, Macquarie and Bell Potter, are shutting their doors to new business. Peter Kerr is an energy consultant and former financial markets trader. Yeah, I think overall it's another sign that the market, the electricity market as a whole, is creaking at the edges, is under stress. It's a difficult time, especially, you know, when these investment bankers, the, you know, the masters of the universe, they're starting to get nervous as well. It certainly tells you something about the broader market and how kind of stressed it's become. So why are they withdrawing? 
Peter Kerr blames volatility in the electricity market. So what they require, you know, their clients is either a bigger margin call, you know, they have to provide them with more collateral to continue to play in the market, or as is the case for the smaller players, they shut off the tap and they say, you can't participate, it's just too risky and we're not comfortable taking on extra risk from you. We've got enough, thank you, our boots are full. You'll have to, you know, sort out yourself some other way. Soon, retailers and generators will have few options and all are expensive, if they can get anything at all. Australian Energy Regulator Chair Claire Savage acknowledges it's a big worry. That is something that we do think is critical, having access to those risk management products so that retailers and generators can manage that risk of high prices into the future. Adrian Merrick from Energy Local says governments can help by pushing for an increase to fuel supplies such as gas and underwriting the hedging market. His firm is insured for this financial year, but he says other providers may not be so lucky. Either way, he believes the consequences for consumers are grim. If the current market conditions continue, I, I do think we'll see some other retailers start to struggle. There's no doubt about that. Adrian Merrick from Energy Locals ending that report by Daniel Mercer. Patients with chronic or terminal illnesses and the elderly dealing with serious health problems often say they'd prefer care at home and not in hospital, arguing they'd be more comfortable and less anxious. Now one of the nation's largest hospital providers is calling for changes to ensure thousands more patients can receive care at home, saying it'd save money and resources. But insurers warn it risks pushing the sector into bankruptcy. Matt Bamford reports. As Jane Walsh's mother entered the late stages of ovarian cancer, she had one wish for her family. After the last time coming out of hospital, she said to us, my sister and myself and my father, please, I don't want to go back to hospital. To honour her mother's choice, Jane's family arranged for palliative care from their Brisbane home. Her hospital, Brisbane's St Vincent's Private Hospital, is contracted with insurers to deliver the service. We phoned Kevin, who was the nurse um, in our area, and from the very first phone call, he was just outstanding. Jane Walsh's mother passed away in March. Jane says she's Believed she could keep her promise. We were able to give what my mum wanted for her for her last days, and I mean, as horrible a journey as it was, it just made it that much better. But it's not possible for everyone. Caitlin O'Day from Catholic Health Australia says thousands of people are missing out because insurers won't cover these at-home services. Health insurers cite these regulatory and cost concerns, but we emphatically reject those and many don't support hospital in the home services that they can't provide themselves directly or or via a subcontractor. The peak body representing 75 hospitals is calling for changes to default benefits, the minimum amount insurers have to pay towards a hospital treatment. Caitlin O'Day says extending these payments to at-home care will give patients more choice over where they receive treatments like dialysis, chemotherapy and palliative care. Out-of-hospital care is the way of the future. Patients love it, clinicians love it. It's, it's safe and effective and it's lower cost. And we should be doing all we can to encourage patients who want to receive care at home to be able to do that. But for insurance companies, it's not that simple. Dr Rachel David is from Private Healthcare Australia, the peak body for insurers. 100% of our health funds support out-of-hospital care and are already providing it in a number of these areas, everything from post-op rehab to palliative care and alcohol detox. What we can't live with, however, is a prescribed 
guaranteed subsidy in addition to what Medicare provides for these services. Dr David says doing so would push private health funds to the brink. If we did that, that would be highly inflationary and would really risk sending the sector bankrupt. Calling for the government to regulate and force payers to pay a guaranteed subsidy sounds like an easy solution. It's something that's happened in hospital care for a number of years, but all it's done is push up the costs of both of premiums and and of hospital um, co-payments paid by patients. A federal government review of default benefit arrangements, which govern payments to privately insured patients, is currently underway. Matt Bamford reporting. Lebanon's embarking on a huge operation to return a million refugees to Syria a decade after they fled the war-torn country. Many refugees say it's still too dangerous for them to return. But in the exclusive interview with the ABC, the Lebanese minister responsible for refugees has revealed the government will make life more uncomfortable for displaced residents, hinting authorities will restrict international financial aid. Ahmed Leish correspondent Alison Horn reports from northern Lebanon. In between piles of rubble and discarded tarp, a dozen children dance around in a circle, holding hands and singing songs. Their laughter masks the difficulties of life inside a Syrian refugee camp, with little food, water and makeshift shelters. But for their father, Khalid Asahir, this life is how he keeps his family safe. We came to Lebanon in 2013. We came because of the bombardments. I saw families dying in front of me. I mainly came for my children and I wanted them to live in a safe place. More than a million refugees fled to Lebanon during Syria's civil war, now making up about a fifth of Lebanon's total population. In a rare interview, Lebanon's Social Affairs Minister Hector Hajar has revealed to AM why the government wants them gone. Lebanon, in this dire situation, is unable to absorb this huge number of refugees. No country would anyway. Lebanon can neither integrate these refugees nor keep them on its soil. Lebanon will not make it comfortable for them to want to stay here. Lebanon has been rocked by a financial crisis. It's seen the value of the local currency collapse and hundreds of thousands of people plunged into poverty. Kadar Ward runs a small shop opposite a refugee camp. He earns about one Australian dollar per day and is upset his neighbours receive international financial aid that he can't access. I feel angry because I wonder what's the point of living. A foreigner in Lebanon is receiving aid and the Lebanese doesn't even get a loaf of bread. It's quite unfair. The government's hinted it'll restrict that financial aid to make life in Lebanon less appealing for refugees. But Khaled Asahir says it's too dangerous for his family to return to Syria. Sometimes we're at work and we hear Lebanese complain that the Syrians have stolen our jobs. It's just words, but it's quite hurtful. The UN Refugee Agency says the refugees have a right to choose if and when they return and their protection in host countries remains vital. This is Alison Horn in northern Lebanon reporting for AM. And that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. 
Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. There's going to be a new trial starting next year in the case against Bruce Learman, who's accused of raping Brittany Higgins. Mr Learman has always maintained his innocence. Today, criminal justice expert Julia Quilter on the complexity of rape trials. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listener. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.